Daniel, Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched at the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and their daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, Tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. 
He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please do have a seat. Um, and if you could grab your church Bibles again on page 894 uh, to Daniel 8, uh, that would be really helpful. And before we start, let me, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray by your spirit that, you're, that you help us to understand what you have revealed and that, you, that your word may be a reality uh, in our hearts and our minds uh, this evening. Uh, for his name's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, maybe you weren't expecting to hear about a shaggy goat and a ram this evening. Um, if you were exhausted by hearing all that what Corin read, Daniel certainly was when he finished seeing it. Well, we haven't yet finished with dreams of weird and wonderful animals with growing horns if you were here last week. And if all those details are going over your head, that's okay. Daniel didn't understand them either. And all those details aren't exactly going to be my main focus. But to start, what I would like us to engage with is the question, what's our worldview? Meaning, how you see and understand and interact with the world. COVID and the consequences of lockdown are still present. The political and economic landscape is constantly and dramatically changing. And you only need to switch on the news and you have horrific, violent events happening both locally and globally, often within days of each other. Where does that fit in our thinking? And how do I gain security in a future with all the many unpredictable events that are happening and will happen. And I think this chapter really helps us with that as we continue through the book of Daniel. So have a look with me at verse 1. It tells us that Daniel has a vision that takes place after the one he's just had in the previous chapter. And what we were shown in the vision of Daniel in chapter 7 last week was a sweep of history, focusing on the births of great empires and their downfall, where we see God come out on top and establishing his kingdom that will last forever. Well, we've, we've now been transported from a vision with a swirling pool to standing by a canal. 
And in Daniel 8, we have a similar theme of that in chapter 7, but instead it focuses on a specific point in history. It depicts an event that has already been fulfilled in the past as far as we're concerned, but is yet to happen for Daniel here in chapter 8. And so the first point I want to highlight from this passage is that God knows the future. God knows the future. And we get this because in verse 26 it says, Seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. God is showing Daniel what is set to happen. Um, Animals are often uh, symbols used to represent a country or a sports team, uh, whether it's to express a self-image that they want to get across or highlight some unique feature of the nation. Just like the Rugby World Cup at the moment, we've had a lion and a dragon playing the tournament. And something similar is going on here with what's being portrayed in front of Daniel. The ram and he go aggressively charging around the place and fighting with growing horns is a picture of great powerful nations and conquering human kings trampling and charging their way through the years. But here God is showing Daniel the pattern of how successive human empires will come and go. An angel who is named Gabriel reveals to Daniel in verses 17 to 22 who all these animals and horns represent and what will happen to them. And we can actually look back in history, for example, and see that the empire of the Medes and Persians represented by the ram was defeated by the king of Greece, Alexander the Great, the he-goat, verses 20 to 21. He, Alexander, then died tragically young, hence the horn at its peak being knocked off. Four generals who Alexander the Great appointed to govern the Greek Empire as he was dying, we know certainly weren't as powerful as he was referred to in verse 22. But then we have this little horn that really takes the spotlight for the rest of the text. And again, another history lesson for you. It's generally accepted that this horn represents an individual who came up after the four Greek generals called Antiochus IV. And this individual is known in history for becoming a mighty and powerful emperor who regarded himself as the Greek god Zeus, almost like a manifestation of Zeus. He had a great hatred for the Jews and caused significant persecution to them. Hence, the horn's direction to the beautiful land Israel in verse 9. The books of the Maccabees, uh, which you might be familiar with, are these historical accounts of political, military, and diplomatic events in the Jewish history that reference Antiochus IV and the horrific evil he did to God's people. Antiochus is referred in these accounts to have been so intentional in banning Israel's customs and any engagement they would have with the Torah, Israel's law, with such violent consequences. Um, One account says that any woman or anyone in the family who had their children circumcised would be put to death and the infant would be hung from the mother's necks. One Maccabee says this about Antiochus IV. He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. Israel mourned deeply in every community. Rulers and elders groaned. Young women and young men became faint. The beauty of the woman faded. Every bridegroom took up the lament. 
She who sat in the bridal chamber was mourning. Even the land trembled for its inhabitants, and all the house of Jacob was clothed with shame. So a really dark time and not a pleasant character. But this individual, Antiochus IV, is eventually stopped and destroyed. Which brings me on to the second point I want to highlight. That God guides the future. So not only does God know the future, reveals to Daniel what is set to happen, the text tells us he also guides the future and is in full control of it. Because we see in verse 19 that there is an appointed time for the end. It's revealed to Daniel that although there will come a time where God's people will suffer horrifically in the future, there is an end date. In verses 13 to 14, we have an angelic conversation that tells us that it will be limited, giving 2,300 evenings and mornings, which has generally been interpreted of the number of years Antiochus IV was in power before he's destroyed and the damage done to God's sanctuary, the temple, was restored. Now, as mentioned before, the general understanding is that all that has been described in this chapter has happened. It's been fulfilled. That time of wrath and the time of the end, specifically in this chapter and this context, refers to the end of Antiochus IV's rule and his destruction. Not the end of all things and the final judgment. So all this has happened, and yet it does still have relevance for us today. Because although it's talking about an event that has passed for us here, it's also pointing to an event that is happening now, and is still to happen in the future. Chapter 8, because of what Antiochus IV did to God's people, paints us a portrait of what evil looks like in God's eyes with three very clear expressions. We see that he, Antiochus, sins against God by considering himself equal to God and historically does a whole lot of awful stuff in the temple. Verses 10 to 11, it grew the horn until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. So he sins against God. Secondly, he sins against God's people, verse 24, by destroying them. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. And thirdly, He sins against God's truth in verses 12b and 25a, historically possibly referring to what was done to the Torah, Israel's law. Verse 12b, it prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. 25a, he will cause deceit to prosper. So that's the archetypal face of evil. Sins against God, sins against God's people, sins against God's truth. And there have been many people who have come and gone throughout the centuries in history who have become powerful and done great evil and caused great persecution to God's people. 
and who still manifest themselves today in many forms, individually, institutionally, and nationally, that express anti-God, anti-church, and anti-truth. And so this vision of the little horn is to be seen almost as a foreshadowing. Foreshadowing meaning a warning or indication of a future event. And it's a foreshadowing of what opposition looks like to God and his people. Opposition that is happening now and will happen again even on a much larger scale. That picture of Antiochus IV, it fits the history. But we have something bigger to realise. An implication of this text is that evil in all its forms minor and major, will echo throughout the centuries until the very end of time, both on international scales and locally. Revelations, the final book of the Bible, tells us it's only going to get a lot worse before it gets better. The book of Revelation speaks of a continuation of conquests, war, famine and death that throughout the centuries have been taking place and are taking place. And in regards to God's people, you only need to read sources from organisations that focus on the persecuted church to see the extent of extreme hostility Christians are facing around the world. Um, it was only this August where 26 churches and roughly 200 Christian families' homes in Pakistan were burnt by extremists in one day. There are many situations of those from Muslim and Hindu backgrounds converting to Christianity, being killed instantly by members of their community and even their own family. Um, in uh, Sri Lanka, 22-year-old Janani was beaten to death by her mom with a wooden plank for converting to Christianity. Um, the mom took the body in the back garden and buried it. Um, she then called the police and uh, told them that her daughter was missing and then eventually confessed to what she had done. Are you appalled by what you see now? We're meant to be. Daniel was in verse 27. But God guides the future. And just as before with this angelic conversation going on in verses 13 to 14, make it clear that the suffering will be limited. There will also be a limit and cut-off point that will be put on the suffering and persecution that is happening in this world to God's people now and in the future. Because Revelations, the very last book of the Bible, encourages us that all of this disaster and horror that is happening in the world is under the authority of a slain lamb. Yep, another animal in the picture for you. But that slain lamb represents the crucified and risen Christ who will put an end to all evil and restore all things. So both in this foreshadowing of the end in chapter 8 and the persecution and distress that has happened <coughs> is happening now and will happen until the very, very end are all in the hands of God. Just as God destroyed the opposing evil and restored the temple in Daniel's vision of chapter 8, 
God will ultimately defeat all evil and restore a corrupted creation. Which leads us finally to the very last verse, 27. Daniel was sick for several days and still being disturbed by all of this, he eventually cracked on with the work he had to do. Well, there are three implications I want to draw on for us from this passage that I hope are helpful. Firstly, we adjust our worldview. What is your Christian worldview? Now, obviously, we live in very uncertain times in all kinds of ways. Whether you're thinking about events going on globally around the world, upcoming events in the UK, maybe you're going to start a new job, maybe it's university, or maybe you're going through a significant change within your immediate family. Daniel was given the confidence, despite the changes that were going to happen, he knew God not only knew the future, but he also guided it as well. And we also have that confidence that through the sweep of whatever future we have left, it's all in the hands of God, both personally and corporately. Secondly, expect suffering and spiritual warfare. Um, in the New Testament, in uh, John chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, uh, you don't have to turn to it, um, I, I can read it. Jesus says to his disciples, he says this, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. And the context here is Jesus is talking about the hatred the world has for him and his disciples. In Daniel 8, God forewarns and prepares Daniel and the people of God of the future. And we see it again in Jesus' words to his disciples. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. So both Daniel 8 and Jesus' words in John 16 serve as a kindness to those who it was intended for. It gives a forewarning and preparation of what to expect from a fallen world towards God's people. Yes, we live in a country that may not see the horror happening regularly that Janani and many in her position have been victim to on a regular daily basis and large scale. But we live in a rapidly secularizing culture where we see the spirit of anti-God, anti-church and anti-truth being played out in our communities that we live in. Um, places we work and the relationships that we're part of. Uh, in November last year, Adam Smith Connor was criminally charged under what's now called thought crimes because he was silently praying outside an abortion clinic about his deceased son. Matthew Gretsch, an ex-LGBT activist, is battling for his freedom in court and facing potential prison time in Malta because he shared his testimony of leaving behind a gay lifestyle to follow Christ. You know your workplace. Some of you no doubt experience or, or know of others who have been up against the fierce hostility of militant atheism at work. Colleagues knowing your values and what you stand for or just being there is costing you in all sorts of ways. And don't think that all of this is just a result of fallen human nature. 
not only are we fallen, but we need to be aware that behind great evil is demonic activity. Satan is described as the evil one, the enemy of mankind. The Bible makes it clear that Satan is ruler of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air, basically meaning he is active. As Christians, we're in a spiritual battle. And as we engage in the world, we need to be aware of this. Both in our lives, the institutions where we work, and the nation we're part of. Do we have the armor God has given us from Ephesians 6 on? Thirdly, we continue to do the work that God has given us to do. We don't retreat in a spiritual hub or in full-time Christian ministry out of fear and avoidance. We don't start some mass end of the world club obsessing about dates and times of when things might happen. No, we get on with the king's business. The work we have, the institutions and organisations we're involved with. Which may have no Christian foundation just like Daniel in Babylon. But being fully aware of and not deceived by the horned beast that lurks under it all. And yet at the same time, we serve the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, in those places where we work, knowing that he has overcome the world, cares about our circumstances to the smallest detail, and is fully in control. Well, let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you that you not only know the future, but you guide the future. That we have the freedom to gather together to hear your word and encourage one another when so many don't have the opportunity. And Father, we are reminded that you are sovereign over all evil in this world. Please help us by your spirit to be faithful in whatever opposition we might face in our life. And help us to truly know for all the powerful nations and what's going on, Lord, as a humble Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged, your dominion is an eternal dominion and your kingdom endures from generation to generation and that heaven rules. Amen.